0: The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ in his mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. The scripture reading today is from Galatians 5, 13-21. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love serve one another, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out, you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ.
1: Thank you, Patrick. Uh, Good morning, everybody. Uh, uh, I will start this way. The world is anxious. The world is anxious because of a pandemic that is uh, known as the coronavirus. And uh, I just read this morning uh, that... Uh, The latest updates are telling us that 87,000 people have been infected globally with this virus. 80,000 of those are in China, and so we need to be praying for our our brothers and sisters and friends in in China especially. Uh, Globally, there have been almost 3,000 lives lost because of the virus, Uh, and uh, there was the first death in the U.S. due to coronavirus just yesterday in Washington State. Uh, As far as we know, it hasn't reached Nashville uh, yet, but the uh, World Health Organization uh, indicates that there is a risk that this, like any pandemic, could spread just about anywhere. And so the impact is that there are warnings everywhere. if If you're traveling, especially if you're in airports and on airplanes, wear a mask, make sure you wash your hands regularly, keep your hands out of your mouth and out of your eyes and so on. Uh, Major restrictions have been placed on travel uh, in certain parts of the world and the stock market is plunging and people are worrying that they and or their loved ones might contract this virus. And um, the thing about a virus is, this is what's so challenging and maybe a little bit frightening about something like the coronavirus is that you can have a virus for a good season and not know it. Uh, it's this thing called an incubation period where the virus is in your system, but it doesn't manifest immediately, and, and you're contagious uh, during that time. Uh, the coronavirus, uh, it could take up to 14 days, we're told, before, uh, before symptoms start to manifest. If you have the HIV virus, it could take up to 12 years. You could be a carrier for 12 years, and you can be contagious for 12 years. Now, Galatians is, is a similar kind of warning. Uh, there's something that has started to go viral, so to speak, uh, in the church at Galatia. And Paul is warning throughout this letter that if this viral thing that he calls false teaching is not quarantined, there will be a death toll, so to speak, Uh, Some of you, Paul says to Galatia, some of you have the virus and you don't even realize it uh, and you certainly don't realize its potential long-term effect. What he's saying is you're living with a silent killer. And uh, so what we want to talk about today, what we're going to talk about today from chapter five or this section of chapter five is the question of what are some of the symptoms that, that we've maybe contracted this virus that's being uh, spread by the false teachers, sort of summarized by the idea that it's Jesus plus something else that we contribute that gets us uh, right with God and right with the community of God's people. That's the false teaching. The plus part is the false teaching. The true teaching is Jesus alone gets you right with God and, and grants you... Uh, Participation and belonging in the in the family of God. The symptoms of this infected community uh, also have a single cure. And this single cure functions both as a vaccine to prevent it from being contracted and also as an antibody to attack the illness or the disease or the the viral false teaching uh, if it's been caught. So, we'll spend the next few moments talking about those two things the symptoms and also the cure. Uh, so, we'll start with the symptoms. And, and, and the symptoms, the way that, that, that Paul describes it, the phrase that he assigns to the symptoms of this disease in the church at Galatia is what he calls walking in the flesh. Walking in the flesh. In verse 13, he says, don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another, for the whole law, all the Bible, is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Then he goes on to say, walk by the Spirit, and you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. Now, that's a key word, that word desires, and I'll, I'll unpack that in a few minutes, But he says, if you walk by the Spirit, you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. The flesh, the Greek word is sarx. It is uh, the sin-desiring nature of a human being. It's that part of us that prefers to be independent from God and to be self-sufficient and to take ownership of uh, what is best for us what's not good for us, to sort of be a law unto ourselves. That's how the flesh manifests. And there are three categories, um, roughly speaking, that Paul divides uh, sort of the symptoms of of walking in the flesh into. Uh, Religious, sexual, and social. And so we'll start with religious. He talks about sorcery, uh, and he also talks about idolatry, which is, Uh, which is a word that means taking good things that God has given us or provided for us and turning them into ultimate things. Uh, Substituting something that God has made, uh, usually a good gift that God has made, substituting that thing for Jesus himself and giving our lives to it, serving it, becoming slaves to it, because we think that somehow it's going to Save us, so to speak. It can be anything. It can be health. It can be fitness. It could be money. It could be property or some material good. It could be marriage. It could be uh, children. It could be a career. It could be control. It could be religion. So one of the commentaries that, that I looked at uh, when I was preparing for this message last week says that idolatry is like a wagon without wheels. A wagon without wheels. Now, a wagon is a good thing. It can carry heavy objects. It can transport people and, and, and goods from one place to another. A wagon is a good thing, but a wagon without wheels, uh, the commentary said, works this way. The wagon without wheels kind of works, but it drags and it scrapes. Eventually, it disintegrates. It works for a while, but eventually, as time goes on, there is less and less of a wagon there. Now, what, what, what this teaching is, and I won't belabor it too much, we've got entire sermons and sermon series on idolatry. Uh, read Tim Keller's book, Counterfeit Gods, if you want a, a, a more, more thorough picture of it. But what's, what's being said here in the commentary is, when we turn a good thing that God has entrusted to us into our ultimate thing, and that thing is not Jesus Christ, and all that Jesus Christ came to be for us and do on our behalf, we not only lose the thing, we lose ourselves. We lose the thing, and we lose ourselves eventually. Jesus put it this way, you can gain the whole world and lose your soul. You can gain the world, lose your soul. So, religious manifestation, substituting anything for Jesus as your ultimate thing. Secondly, the sexual manifestation. Verse 19, Paul says, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, that means real or fantasized uh, intercourse between unmarried people or people who aren't married to each other. Uh, Impurity, that's a word that means unnatural sexual practices. And debauchery which is a Greek word, uh, comes from a Greek word that means um, uh, sexuality with no boundaries. And so, so that's the, the example. But, but the bigger principle is this, that God cares deeply. God is concerned deeply not only about the spiritual world and our spiritual lives, but the material world and our material lives. There was this uh, early ancient heresy called Gnosticism. And what Gnosticism taught was that physical matter, the world, the human body stuff, uh, is very secondary. What, what, What really matters is the spirit. What really matters is the soul. And the ultimate existence is when the soul can escape uh, this physical body and just be the free, liberated soul. And, and frankly, many of our ideas of what heaven is like is Gnostic. We think that heaven is, uh, is some, some kind of existence that, that, that separates us from the body, and, and maybe we, we, we float around in the spiritual world like, like the angels do, uh, but we become disembodied. That's actually not the Bible's teaching about what the future looks like. The future looks like everything as we know it except redeemed and made perfect and beautiful and whole. The future of heaven, the kingdom of God, is very physical, just as it is very spiritual, and the two are integrated. You know, when God created the heavens and the earth, you know, he looked back after, after the day he created water, or earth, or the sky, or or plants, or animals. He looked back on each day of creation, and he looked at the material stuff that he had made, and he said it is good. It's good. And so if you ever wonder why we have in our mission statement as a church to follow Christ in his mission of loving people, places, and things to life, we're not trying to be cutesy. We're trying to be deeply theological uh, in the way that we state our mission. That the earth is the Lord's, and everything in it, that everything in heaven and on earth is is his, and this is all his kingdom, including the physical stuff. But on the sixth day, when God created the human body, and I think this gets to Paul's teaching about distorted sexuality, he said, what what I've created, when I've created man and woman, is very good. It's superlatively, it's supremely good. So God's benedictions over his creation, especially the human body. If anything, should be derived from that, it is handle with care. Handle with care. You know, I've, told, I've told our church family before about a dumb thing I did in New York City's Metropolitan Museum of Art once, I uh, asked an actual artist, a painter, to, to come with me and, and sort of take me on a tour, uh, take me on his favorite tour, his name is Jerry, uh, of the Met. And he took me straight to the Van Gogh room and started, you know, started talking about all the wonderful things about Van Gogh, giving me a little Van Gogh biography, um, you know, t- talking to me about how you know art and painting is, is sort of the, 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 the expression of what's, what's inside a human soul. It, it's sort of the image of God put on a canvas. And what was so fascinating to me about Van Gogh, if you've ever seen a Van Gogh um, painting, especially live and in person, is that he clumps and globs uh, and, and creates a, a sort of three-dimensional um, scene with the oil painting or with the oil paints. And so one moment, I'm I'm, I'm sitting there really close to one of the paintings, and I start reaching my hand toward it to touch it, because I want to feel it. And my, my artist friend, Jerry, says, Stop, you fool, stop! Or something like that. At least his tone of voice said, You fool. I don't think he actually said that. But he said... You need to understand that if if the oils from your fingertips make contact with the paint, it will begin a process of corrosion on the paint. It wouldn't happen immediately. Just like death and sorrow won't happen immediately with false teaching, just like death and sorrow won't happen the moment you contract HIV or what have you, it will come. And it will come gradually, it will sneak up on you. Don't fool yourself into thinking that this will lead to flourishing because it will strip you of flourishing. It's a wagon without wheels. And the third manifestation of walking in the flesh that Paul uh, points out is social. And you know, He says in verse 14, that the whole law of God is summed up in this, love your neighbor as yourself. That's the law of God. The law of the flesh or the law of the sarks, says not love your neighbor as yourself but be true to yourself. That's what the law of the flesh says. Live your truth. Look out for number one. And this manifests in a couple of ways. First the centrality of self. I am the sun and other people are the planets. My job is is to be the center of things, your job is to revolve around me. That's how the flesh manifests. One time, uh, speaking of viruses, my wife Patty and I had uh, a flu that kept us both at about 103 degree fever and almost completely immobile. It was all we could do to get up, go to the restroom, come back to bed. That was our day of expending energy. I was doing that once or twice And at about day three or four, one of our daughters, uh, who uh, was about 10, 11 years old at the time, came in while we were just flattened out on our bed, and she said, you know, you guys having the flu like this, this is really hard on me. (laughs) I am the sun, you are the planets. But then Paul talks about the way that people hurt each other. He talks in verse 14 about biting and devouring, consuming each other, enmity, strife. This is verse 20. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, division, envy. He talks about divisiveness a lot more than he talks about sexual sin. And that is isn't to minimize the importance of getting sex right. But divisiveness, just by virtue of volume, seems to be an even greater concern to the heart of God. Maybe because it's the biggest sin in the churches. Okay? And the one that's dividing and corroding people and souls more than any other thing. Eugene Peterson's The Message summarizes this section this way. You are depersonalizing everyone into a rival. Here's how rivalry manifests itself. Two sides of the same coin. The first side is... Envy, which Paul mentions here. Envy is wanting what someone else has and resenting them for having it. Wanting what somebody else has and resenting them for having it. So there's this episode of The Simpsons where Marge one day looks over at Homer and says, You really need to give Ned Flanders a chance. You know, you're too hard on Ned Flanders, their next, the, the Simpsons' next-door neighbor. And Homer responds this way to Marge. I don't care if he's the nicest guy in the world. He's a jerk. So Ned Flanders, he's the next-door neighbor. He's a pillar in the community. He's got a nicer house. He's got a fancier grill. He's got a better job than Homer. And so, so Homer wants what Ned has and resents Ned For having it. And then one day, Ned announces that he is going to quit his successful, lucrative career and he's going to become an entrepreneur and he's going to open a store called the Leftorium, which is a store for left handed people. And one day, Homer, just to see how things are going for Ned, goes to the Leftorium and he notices that there are no customers. And he's delighted to see that there are no customers. And he comes home and he gloats to Marge about how much of a failure Ned Flanders is. So Homer has envy, but then it transitions to the flip side of envy or to the kissing cousin of envy, which is what the Germans call schadenfreude. And Webb who lived in Germany for a while after the early service, said it's pronounced schadenfreude. You need to uh, add the uh at the end to pronounce it correctly. But I'm going to stick with my misinformed American pronunciation schadenfreude nonetheless. Envy's kissing cousin is taking pleasure in the misfortune of others. Envy is wanting what other people have, resent, resenting them for having it. Schadenfreude or schadenfreude, is taking pleasure in the misfortune of others. Last night, Patty and I got to go to the inaugural game of the Nashville Soccer Club. They played against Atlanta. And one thing we noticed as the game went by was some of the loudest roaring cheers in the stadium happened when somebody on the other team got severely injured, and got flattened, and hurt, and was laying on the ground, and there were loud cheers of, yes, stick it to him, taking pleasure in somebody else's pain. It happens every time a celebrity, or a a, a politician, or a pastor is caught in a scandal, caught being unfaithful, caught being addicted, caught living a double life. And there are exposés everywhere, and There's this sinister sort of rejoicing everywhere. And we're becoming even more in in this culture of outrage we're in, we're becoming more extroverted about our rejoicing in the downfall of others. How sick is that? How gross is that? And yet how true it is of all of us. It's what the flesh does. You know, the spirit rejoices with those who rejoice and mourns with those who mourn. The flesh rejoices over those who mourn and mourns over those who who rejoice. Envy and schadenfreude. So those are the symptoms of walking in the flesh. The cure is what Paul calls walking in the spirit. The spirit is that part of us that is drawn to depend on God and to rely on Jesus Christ. That's both the vaccination to prevent the illness from taking hold and the antibody to attack it after it has taken hold and kill it. And just so we understand, walking in the Spirit, it sounds so sweet, right? The gentle breeze of the Holy Spirit, the still, small voice. And yes, he can be those things. But what Paul is talking about here feels a lot more like war than it feels like peace. And the Anglican bishop J.C. Ryle wrote this book called Holiness. It's a classic in sort of Christian circles, uh, he, was, he lived in the 1800s and ministered in the 1800s. And there's a chapter in this book. The chapter is called The Fight. And this is where, what he says in that chapter about the true Christian. He says, a true Christian is one who is not only peace of conscience, but war within. The true Christian may be known by his warfare as well as by his peace, and the the war, the greatest war, just to be clear, is is with stuff that's happening inside of us, not with the world outside of us. And so he says in verse 16, Paul does, walk in the spirit, for the desires of the spirit are against, there's an opposition, there's an attacking posture, the desires of the spirit are against the desires of the flesh, they're opposed to the flesh. There's a fight here that, that believers are being called into. And it involves three things. So here's the doctor's prescription from Paul for spiritual viruses. First, pray for the Holy Spirit. He's emphasizing the Holy Spirit, and so pray for the Holy Spirit to come, to take over, to fill you, to move you, to change you. Luke chapter 11, where Jesus teaches us how to pray, and, and, and we get the Lord's Prayer, the famous Lord's Prayer After he teaches on the Lord's Prayer, he provides some commentary about the Lord's Prayer. And he says to his disciples, which of you, if your children ask you for a fish, will give your children a snake? Which of you, if your children ask for an egg, will give them a scorpion? You, even though you're evil, he says, will not give bad gifts to your kids. You delight in giving good gifts to your children, even though you're evil, How much more, Jesus says, will the Father give peace and prosperity? No. Peaceful, easy feeling? No. How much will the Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? See, change only happens when our desires change, and our desires only change when God changes them. When the desires of the flesh are supplanted by the desires of the Holy Spirit. Jonathan Edwards wrote this, did a lot of work on the, the concept of free will. And he said, absolutely, every person has free will. But he qualified. He says, it comes with a caveat. People are only free to choose, however, whatever they desire the most. You're only free to choose what you want Most. And so, in praying for the Holy Spirit, it's really a prayer. God, make my wants the same as your wants. Transform my wants to your wants. It's like this: say you have a fifty-year-old, and all of his life he's been he's been um, he's been on a diet of basically sugar and fat and salt. And he's overweight, he's always been 20, 30 pounds overweight, but he doesn't care. Because being skinny, the desire to be skinny, the desire to be physically fit, the desire to be eye candy is significantly less than the desire to eat candy and to enjoy the satisfaction of a crappy meal on a regular basis. His desires need to change. At age 50, he goes in for his checkup, and the doctor says, I've got some bad news for you. Your arteries are starting to fill with plaque. But the good news is, it's not too late to address it. And so he becomes a vegan. All of a sudden, he becomes a vegan when all of his life he didn't care before. Why? Because a new desire has entered the picture. He didn't care about being skinny, but he does care about living. He does care about not dying prematurely, and so he changes everything. And then over time, his taste changes. He actually starts to enjoy vegetables. They become a want to instead of a have to because of the rhythms that have reformed his habits and his desires. You know, C.S. Lewis says if you want to develop affection for somebody, think of a disobedient child or a spouse who has, or a friend who, or a colleague who has maybe personality traits that get under your skin. If you want to develop affection for them, develop the practice of loving them. And the more you practice loving them, the more your affection will grow. Proof of this your children. Your children. They were born opposing you. They've been opposing you all of their lives. They have been your unsolicited parenting consultants all your lives. Here's how you're doing it wrong. Here's how you're doing it wrong. Here's how you're doing it wrong. And yet you have, so much, you have more affection for them than anyone. Why? Because you've developed a lifelong rhythm of leaning in instead of piecing out, of loving them even when you don't like them because love is patient and it's kind and it keeps no record of wrongs and it bears all things and believes all things and hopes all You've developed a rhythm and it's, it's, it's caused an affection to swell up in you. That's what Lewis was talking about. So that's the second thing the doctor prescribes is you've got to not only pray for the Holy Spirit, you've got to participate with the Holy Spirit. You know, St. Augustine and St. Benedict Uh, They both had their own version of what they called the rule of life, and the rule of life was a series of practices that both of these epic saints said, if you organize your life around these practices, you set yourself up to flourish. If you ignore these practices or deprioritize these practices, you set yourself up to be a wagon without wheels. We actually developed our own little Christ Presbyterian rule of life in a recent sermon series where we talked about flourishing as a byproduct of worshiping, connecting, and serving. Worshiping, to us this means two things, to be fully present with the local church every single Sunday. That includes when you're in town and that includes when you're on vacation. It doesn't include when you've contracted the coronavirus. There are exceptions. But below the 1.7 times a month American average out of the universe by coming four times when there are four Sundays and five when there are five, no matter where you are. That's practice number one. Practice number two, be fully present with Jesus Christ every single day. Make a point of receiving something from his word every single day, and then pray back to him according to what he's given to you. So that's the worship part of the rule of life. The connect part is this. Two things again. Take every opportunity to gather with your group that, in, that assumes that you have a regular group of people, that you're heading in the same direction alongside them and they alongside you toward Jesus. Take every opportunity to gather with that group and Befriend and bring in people who don't have a church. So that's the sharing your faith component. That's your sharing your faith practice. And then the third component is serve. And by this we mean two things. Strengthen the church through serving and giving. An other-oriented, outward, generous life. And enhance flourishing out in the world by serving your work, your world, and people in need. So these things... If you organize your life around these things, you will be a wagon with wheels. If you neglect these things, you'll be a wagon without wheels. This is not legalism. And and, and the reason why I can tell you it's not legalism is when you make a train wreck of your life by ignoring these things, I'll tell you the first entity that's gonna be there for you to help pick up the pieces is your church. We will be there. We don't pass judgment on, on the success or failure of people to keep a rule of life. And we're here to pick up the pieces when the pieces fall. We're here to put wheels back on the wagon. But the point is this, and Paul is making this point as well, even in the the letter of grace. Habituation leads to formation, and there will be no formation without habituation. There's a practice. There's God's part in giving us the Holy Spirit. There's our part in participating with the Holy Spirit. Charles Duhigg, this isn't just a religious principle, it's a secular one too. Charles Duhigg wrote a book called The Power of Habit in which he says that 40% of daily decisions that we make are second nature to us because of the habits that have formed us. James K.A. Smith, who wrote a book called You Are What You Love, said this. The orientation of the human heart happens from the bottom up through the formation of our habits of desire. Learning to love God takes practice. You know, Malcolm Gladwell in Outliers popularized what what we now know as the 10,000-hour rule. He says, the key to success in any task is to practice that task 20 hours a week for 10 years. So... I've been giving sermons for about 20 years. In 1998-ish, it took me 20 hours to prepare a bad sermon. Now in the year 2020, it takes me about five hours to prepare a decent one because of practice, because of habituation. 30 years ago, I picked up a guitar for the very first time and today, I'm no better now than I was 29 years ago. <laughs> because of a lack of practice. Right, Mr. Osinga? Sorry to point you out. The best of the best, they still do their scales. Mick Jagger still does vocal runs before a concert. Flourishing is cultivated. It just doesn't happen. There is no let go and let God with this kind of stuff. Let go and let God, in terms of giving you the Holy Spirit, ask and then get active with what the Spirit is up to or you will miss it. You will, as Jonah said, forfeit the grace that could be yours. You know, how can we think that flourishing must be cultivated musically, athletically, in marriage, but not with life in Christ? And that brings us to the final remedy, and that's to draw near to Christ. That's the role of the Holy Spirit, ultimately is to act as father of the bride, to to, to walk us up to the groom and hand us over to Christ, the bridegroom. The Holy Spirit's fundamental job is to amplify our vision of Jesus Christ, the bridegroom. These habits of worshiping, connecting, and serving these like our people places and things deeply theological in terms of their origin. They are the key to thriving because worshiping, connecting and serving are the environments and the practice where Jesus practices where Jesus promises he will show up. Worship he inhabits the praises of his people. This is my body. This is my blood in your midst, in your person, materially in a moment. Connect wherever two or three or more are gathered in my name. There I am in their midst. Serving the world. Well, when Jesus gave the great commission, go into all the world, serve, baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey everything I commanded you. comes with a promise. I'm with you always. To the very end of the age. The closer we are to Jesus, the further we're going to be from sin. The trick is we become like Jesus not by trying to be like Jesus, we become like Jesus by being with Him. In the same way that we get infected with a virus because we've been kissed by a carrier, because we've inhaled the breath of a carrier because we've eaten after a carrier, we also catch what Jesus has. The theologians call them his communicable attributes. They're summarized in next week's list, the fruit of the spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We become those people not by trying to be those people, but by receiving the breath of Christ, the kiss of Christ, And the feast of Christ prepared by his hands. Jesus is the virus that we want to infect us because, unlike other viruses that lead to diminishment and strip flourishing, when we catch Christ by being in his midst, by positioning ourselves where he says he's going to show up regularly through a rule of life, through formative practices around which we organize the very rest of our lives. That's where we actually start to flourish. That's where we start to heal. And it starts here at a table. The table where he says, this is my body and blood given for you. And so let's receive him now. Uh, What I'd like to do now is is invite uh, Pastor Filson to take the center table and invite everybody else who's serving at tables to take your positions and also those who are going to offer uh, availability for prayer on both sides of of the stage, and also the children to come in and take your spots. And as we do that, let's stand together and we'll recite the Apostles' Creed as a family. Daughters and sons of God, what do you believe? I believe believe in in God, the the Father Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and and in in Jesus Jesus Christ, Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of of the Virgin Mary, suffered suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, crucified, died, and was buried. He he descended into into hell. The third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended ascended into into heaven heaven, and is seated on the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the the dead. I believe in in the the Holy Holy Spirit, the Holy Holy Catholic Church, Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, sins, the resurrection of of the body, and the life everlasting." Amen.